Good evening, and welcome to what I think is Rare Book School Lecture 516, is that right? I think I'd remember by now, wouldn't you? I think from long acquaintance that I know Jay Leno. I'm not sure how well Jay Leno knows me. <laughs> Rare Book School had various sorts of relationships with Bernard Breslauer, but I think he may have loomed larger in our life than we did in his. <laughs> Bernard loved a lord, and we did not qualify. <laughs> Bernard Breslauer was the son of the foremost bookseller in Berlin, and the family fled for the usual reasons in the 1930s and went to London. Martin Breslauer died in the Blitz from a heart attack, not from a direct bomb, but might as well have been. And Breslauer entered the English army and ended the war Sergeant Breslauer. This is not a Breslauer that most people, even in my generation, ever saw, and it's quite hard to imagine, frankly. Breslauer started the business all over again with very limited resources and was very successful. In 1977, he stunned the bibliographical world by absconding to America with uh, E.P. Goldschmidt's rare book cataloger. And I came onto the scene at that point because E.P. Goldschmidt, which by then was actually Jacques Vallecoup, was told that what he needed to do was to hire a graduate from the Columbia Rare Book Program. <laughs> and he said that that was absurd. He would never hire an American for anything, let alone to catalog continental books before 1700, most of which were not even in English. That was before he met Robin Hallwiss. And Robin Hallwiss was the very successful uh, new cataloger at E.P. Goldschmidt. E.P. Goldsmith was one of the greatest booksellers of his generation, and in his early days, one of his employees was the infant Robert Dugan. Robert Dugan went on eventually to become librarian of the Huntington Library in California. Robert Dugan left us, or I should say gave us and left us, uh, a sum that finally totaled $70,000 in the 1990s, and that's why we have a Goldschmidt Fellowship at Rare Book School. Dugan wanted nothing named after himself, but he did agree that we could name it after Goldschmidt. But back to Breslauer. Breslauer established himself in a huge apartment diagonally opposite the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, and he proposed... Uh, successfully to become the greatest bookseller in the world. Because what B.H. Breslauer, what Bernard Breslauer sold was taste, and that is the hardest thing to buy. The best known rare bookseller in the world at the time was surely H.B. Krauss. And H.B. Krauss's gross, annual gross, was certainly larger than Bernard Breslauer's. But here's a difference, Roger. This is a story that perhaps you haven't even been uh, encountered. It was told to me by Ken Rendell, and he had it from Breslauer. It's the annual meeting of the bibliophiles in Paris. This would be in the 1970s. They're on a boat in the Seine. And Krauss comes up to Breslauer and says, Breslauer, Bernard, is there anybody here who's important? Besides me, I mean. <laughs> and he goes on to say, I am so sick, says Krauss, of Tour d'Argent. Every evening, Tour d'Argent. Every evening they insist on taking me to Tour d'Argent, which is a three-star restaurant in Paris. I'm sure this happens to you too, Bernard. Isn't it boring? <laughs> and Bressard says, I don't know, Hans. My f French friends take me home to dinner. <laughs> Bressauer then went around the corner, says Rendell, and literally jumped for joy. He was in his 70s. I got the son of a bitch. I got the son of a bitch. Uh, Bressauer had a wonderful apartment full of wonderful books, not only that he sold, 
but also in his own collection. He collected himself uh, bibliophilic and bibliographical books in fine bindings that included copies of his own firm's catalogs, which he commissioned very fine bindings indeed for. And one of those is on the poster. I was interested that the catalog says uh, silhouette of a man on the description of that binding, but of course it is a silhouette of Breslauer himself. He was fluent in German, French, and English. He had been in the trade for a long time in his family before him. He was hard to get along with, and his friendships tended not to last. He was very, very amusing whenever he spoke, but he did have a rather pointed tongue. Not a forked tongue. Breslauer said what he thought, but a pointed tongue. One of his great friends was Roger Stoddard, and we all knew that and uh, admired that friendship, and Roger uh, has agreed to talk about that tonight. Roger Stoddard was, uh, for to my generation, for several hundred years, the curator of rare books at Harvard, and uh, he retired several years ago, although uh, it would be foolish to suggest that that meant anything except that his bibliographical pursuits increased in number and consequence and his great catalog of early English poetry is going to be published when? Out of my hands. Which means it's in the press. Uh, and that will be something, as is Roger. Roger Sutter. I've never tarried anywhere I snatched from fortune what I wanted. What did not please me, I let go and disregarded what eluded me. I've only had desires to fulfill them, then wished anew, and so I've stormed amain my way through life. Once grand and vigorous, my days are spent with prudent caution. I know this mortal's fear sufficiently, and there is no seeing into the beyond. He is a fool who casts a sheep's eye at it, invents himself some peers above the clouds. Let him stand firm and look at what's around him. No good and able man no good and able man finds this world mute. Let him stand firm and look at what's around him. No good and able man finds this world mute. What need has he to float into eternity? The things he knows are tangible. Let his path be this earth while he exists. If spirits haunt him, let him not break stride, but keeping on, find all life's pains and joys, always, in every moment, never satisfied. That's Goethe's Faust speaking, but it could just as well be the Breslauer's Bernard, don't you think? It's Stuart Atkins's rendering of Faust's great speech in the final cinematic act of the Faust poem, set in a wild landscape, a palace and earthworks, mighty heavens above with a cast of hundreds, some laid on just for hovering in the upper sky with the immortal part of Faust. This worthy member of the spirit world is rescued from the devil for him whose striving never ceases, we can provide redemption. In Goethe's version, you know, Faust escapes the devil and ascends to heaven. On Tuesday, 19 October 2004, I returned home from 11 days of lecturing in Melbourne at the invitation of my colleague and friend Wallace Kearsop. 
On the 9th, I had delivered my farewell address to members of the International League of Antiquarian Booksellers at their Congress Symposium, and I had dedicated my speech to the memory of my beloved mentor and friend Bernard H. Breslauer. I had learned that there would be a memorial for Bernard in his apartment on Thursday evening the 21st, and I obtained leave and even funding to attend the event. Early on Thursday evening, I presented myself at 988 Fifth Avenue in Bernard's spacious apartment overlooking the front steps of the Metropolitan Museum. At least 50 people were there when Bernard's friend, the expert bookman Felix de Marais Oyens, opened the ceremony by reading as an integral part of his eulogy long passages in German from Goethe's Faust. It was hard going for most of the audience, but one knows that Bernard would have been pleased and flattered. Faust was the spiritual nexus of the German high culture assimilated by the Breslauer family, nearly to the point of their extinction. Bernard used to show off a small Parian statuette of Goethe in his parlor, and he never ceased to fuss about the signed printed list of his autograph collection that Goethe used to send out as an appeal for additions. In 1951, Bernard had sold a copy of the broadsheet to Harvard, Autographa, Weimar, 1811. After the Goethe Vorspiel, William Folkley, who had organized and cataloged the marvelous Morgan Library exhibition of Bernard's manuscript illuminations, recounted Breslauer stories, and the accountant Ivan Rosenblum reminisced about working for Bernard each consultation concluding with a tea party. Also, he announced that Bernard had made bequests to the University of California, Los Angeles, the British Library, and the Houghton Library. Then he invited others to speak. I jumped up. I wish that Bernard had told me about the bequest so I could have thanked him, I began. I recalled bringing my Columbia University rare book school classes to the apartment so that Bernard and his gifted partner, Hardy Grebe, could instruct them about book bindings that they would take down from the shelves in the parlor. I used to come here for the birthday parties that Bernard would give for himself. No one else would dare give him a party. First, he might decide not to attend. Second, he might come, make an insulting speech, and leave early for a more important engagement. That received an approving chuckle from the audience. I concluded whenever I would come to call, I would give Bernard a big hug, and he would respond with a nervous little giggle, for he knew that whatever he said or did, I would always love him. And isn't that what love is all about? Next, Marjorie Shab, the photographer for Bernard's great career crowning catalog 110, stood up. She recalled offering Dr. B, I should take your photograph. He assented, presenting himself the next morning in striped shirt, bow, tie, blazer, and pocket square, cigar in hand, lounging in a winged chair, upholstered in stripes. She took 20 shots and was surprised later to find one of her least favorites printed in the Morgan exhibition catalog. She questioned him. He said, that's the one they wanted. Later she learned that he, not the Morgan curators, had chosen it. Then he had said they wanted it at Harvard, and she made an extra print. As she was returning to her seat, I piped up, that print is inscribed to me and hanging in my office. It reads Roger Stoddard from his old friend and admirer, Bernard Breslauer, 2292. When I brought it back from the frame shop, Richard Wendorf, my boss in those days, took one look and cried out, you're not going to hang that in your office. Nowadays, it hangs in my library at home, so I face Bernard every time I go to work. No one would speak to me afterward. I drank some of Bernard's favorite champagne, Paul Roger, 
Surely he knew that it was Winston Churchill's favorite also. Helped myself to one of Bernard's cigars and left. I descended in the elevator with John Goldfinch, head of Incunabula and early Western printed collections at the British Library. What a fortunate coincidence that you happened to be in New York at this time, I offered. Happened? I came over because they told us we were getting a bequest. It is not policy for Harvard's recording secretary to share privileged information of that sort with librarians. But what if no one from Harvard had attended? Next day, I telephoned Ivan Rosenblum from Cambridge. Could you tell me the size of the bequest to Harvard? I could hear him shuffling papers. One million dollars for acquisitions. I wish that he had told me so I could have thanked him. It would not have occurred to me to ask Bernard for money, but I had begged him unsuccessfully, as he wanted everything to be sold after his death, to give to Harvard his greatest collecting achievement, the Bibliotheca Bibliographica Breslaueriana, part of which I had exhibited at the Houghton Library in 1991, compiling a special catalog for the opening and roasting him at the black tie dinner party. While we were choosing books for the exhibition, I was especially moved to see his latest acquisitions, bought at the sale of the private library of the expert Claude Guéhin, owner of Librairie Giro Bardin. Among them were the only copy I have ever seen on China paper of the first Jacques Charles Brunet sale catalog, and my absolute favorite, the La Rochefoucauld Maxime of 1827, printed by Henri Didot in microscopic type, two and three quarters by one and five eighths inches, bound with strap work inlays by Charles Francois Capet. The Maxime stand apart, sui generis from the rest of French literature, just as do their antecedent, the maxims of the law from official statutes. Honed to brilliant perfection in game play with his brainy lady friends of the salon, La Rochefoucauld's sayings were repeated, memorized, and written down. One of the manuscript collections provided the copy text for the Elzevirs to bring out a surreptitious edition. Sentence et Maxime de Morale à la A. chez Jena et Daniel Stoecker, 1664. This unauthorized edition, demonstrating contemporary knowledge of and interest in the Maxime, and preceding Claude Barpin's Paris edition by one year stands among the last books, remnants of my desiderata lists that I left behind on retirement. During my visits to Paris, Guérin had been very kind to me, permitting me to examine books in the private collection he kept in a glass vitrine over the shop. The book I recalled most vividly, I had not seen the Brunet or the La Rochefoucauld there, was a recueil factice of ephemera and clippings by the bibliographer and library administrator Antoine Alexandre Barbier. Barbier's anonyme, as paired eventually with Joseph-Marie Cahar's pseudonym, provides the basic key to concealed French authorship. When I told Bernard about it, he insisted that we telephone Bernard Clairvoy, Libre Thomas Scheller, to find out if it was available. Miraculously, it was, so I bought it for myself on the spot. Now that volume stands in front of me on my work table to remind me that I owe some effort to it. A small octavo with speckled edges, it has a dark green Morocco spine lettered in gilt, a uh, a uh, barbier, opuscule. The title page reads, Opuscule de Monsieur a uh, a uh, barbier, ancien, ancien bibliothécaire du roi, tome premier, Paris, Imprimerie de H. Fournier, Rue de Seine, numéro 12, 1825. A table lists 18 titles, dated between 1800 and 1823. Following but unlisted are, beginning with a frontispiece lithograph portrait by Lang Len after Vigneron, the original drawing for which is owned by my friend Christian Galantaris, three ephemeral biographical pamphlets thereafter the contents ramble around the tabla, what with manuscripts, proofs with autograph corrections, tear sheets, 
clippings and off-prints. It was the proofs and manuscripts that impressed me in Claude Guérin's vitrine. Only now do I know, thanks to the Brunet sale catalog, that 25 copies of the opuscule, with only 14 pieces, were issued by the Marquis de Chateau-Giron, whose handwritten lists of his purchases I had noticed in book sale catalogues in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Perhaps Claude Guérin and I have possessed the copy owned by the Marquis. My friend André Jams informs me that according to the auctioneer's copy, the Bibliothèque Imperiale lost Brunet's copy to Julien at the sale, so the book remains a desideratum of the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. On Monday, 21 March 2005, Christie's New York held the sale of the first portion of the Bibliotheca Bibliographica Breslauriana, 150 important manuscripts, association copies, fine bindings. On Tuesday and Wednesday, 22 and 23 March, followed the second portion antiquarian catalogs. I was tantalized by lot 612 in the second portion, the China paper first part of the Brunei sale catalog, Gustav Moravi's copy, extra illustrated with plates and a portrait. I placed a bid through B. Quaritch Limited and lost by hundreds of dollars. <coughs> the third portion, books printed on vellum, bibliography, books about books, manuscripts, and bookbinding, scheduled for sale on Monday and Tuesday, 27 and 28 June, included the La Rochefoucauld and a book that Bernard never showed to me, the unique copy printed on vellum of the first of Brunet's books on Rabelais, Notice sur deux anciens romans intitulés les Chroniques de Gargantua, 1834. Brunet had retained it for himself, the only bijou copy of his own work in his whole library. As Brunet's bibliographer, attempting to find and describe every issue of every book, I do not need to explain my interest in the Rabelais. But what about the La Rochefoucauld? How could an American librarian form an attachment to it? One of my favorite books to show in class has been an earlier edition of the Maxime, printed by another Didot with types designed by yet another, the 1796 small folio printed on fine vélin by Pierre Didot the Younger with types newly cut and cast by his brother Fermin Didot. The short, pithy texts are numbered in Roman numerals centered above them, the notice and tabla composed like the rest of the book with double line space so that the page is spacious. For me, a perfect typographic book. I note now that the Philip Hofer copy I showed in class was once featured in the graphic arts exhibition case in the Hoden Library lobby. The 1827 edition was printed by Pierre's nephew, Henri, as a showplace for his new 2.5 point microscopic type, cast from his invention, the Poliama type mold, capable of casting 120 types in a single toss. The Guérin sale catalog credits the Procès de Polia Matip, was she imagined, I suppose, to be a Russian Beatrice Ward. The type is legible, and the tolerances are adjusted for it, so the result is a Lilliputian masterpiece of the printer's art and genius. Brunet calls it a Jolie edition, and he points to Charles Nodier's copy of it in an embroidered binding in silver. The binding is signed Capet for Charles-Francois Capet, who had risen from concierge and apprentice decorator of paper at the Louvre to bookbinder there, also binder to the Empress, before establishing himself as an independent binder in 1848. He attracted the services of Marius Michel Père, one of the greatest finishers her of his time, and of one Rossignures, a draftsman and designer. The resulting work, perfectly finished, included renovations of 17th century French gold tooling 
and 16th century Parisian inlay. The La Rochefoucauld offers examples of both, gold tooling on green doublure and black Morocco strapwork inlays on the gilt citron Morocco covers. My experience with Capet had not been conclusive. By accident, I had purchased an example for the library from William Salloc, a copy of the 1599 edition in Paris of the Poemata Sacra of J.A. de Tu in red Morocco Janssenist signed by Capet, and from Black Sun Books, a copy of the exceedingly rare and important 1524 Paris edition of the Chronique of Philippe de Comines, <coughs> book one of his memoir. This last, a thin folio in red Morocco with a book plate of the great American amateur Samuel Putnam Avery, whose miniature books glisten in a vitrine on the fifth floor of the Grolier Club and whose memorial gift established the great architecture library at Columbia, is decorated in gilt with a strapwork frame about an, quote, azured center in Grolier-esque design, according to an old description clipped from a sale catalog. The binding is not signed, but it bears every evidence in design and finish to the work of Capet and is so credited in the Avery sale catalog. I have the feeling that Bernard came late to an appreciation of this binder's work as he ventured into the 19th century in order to consolidate his expert knowledge of early bindings with his passion for the pirant techniques of Paul Bonnet and the moderns. Antoine Bozonnet is quoted for exclaiming, Pour moi, Capet état l'idéal. Bernard took pride in his copy of the Capet sale catalog with the portrait photograph inserted and he would have sold to me for the library his extra copy of the catalog if Philip Hofer had not purchased one many years before from Pierre Bires, New York, that is to say from Lucien Goldschmidt, who operated the New York outpost. My appreciation of book bindings owes much to my visits with Bernard to view his stock and hear him describe and compare. Thanks to Bernard, for instance, Harvard possesses a prime example of the work of the English binder Sybil Pye. It is the Book of Thel, published by Hakon and Ricketts, in tan Morocco with green and red inlays, gilt with tools designed for her by Charles Ricketts. Sybil Pye is not universally admired, witness the real binding experts, whose disdain for her self-taught forwarding prevents them from enjoying the fresh modernist antics of her finishing. But back to Capet and the 1827 miniature La Rochefoucauld. Typographical landmark, technically virtuosic both in printing and binding, elegant in the design of both. It is the perfect lure for a retired librarian and it provides a link to his old friend and mentor. The accompanying pull-off case is a lesson in itself repeating the colors of the binding, dark green Morocco of the finest grain, inner sleeve of crushed citron Morocco. On the day of the auction, I am sure that Bernard smiled on me for laying my savings account on the line. <clears throat> for his book, it fell to my agent for less than the bottom estimate, so did the Brunei. In the second portion sale, I had purchased Bernard's set with J.R. Abbey's book plate of the Repertoire Bulletin of Morgan de Fatou with the intention of scanning it. So I have taken the opportunity to check on copies of the La Rochefoucauld that figure in it from 1876 to 1908, there being no further examples of, of it through 1920. One sees even in such a small sample of 13 entries that the book provided an attractive and worthy challenge to some of the great binders of the day, Hippolyte Dirou, Henri Marius Michel, and Bernard David, too, as well as Capet. Bernard had left a marker in his set at the Capet entry. Lot 103 in Capet's auction was a copy broche unbound awaiting a commission. By 22 July 2005, the books had made their way from Christie's, New York, to Golden Square, London, where they were examined by my agent, Nicholas Poole Wilson, and my book dealer friend, Robert Harding. 
Harding has dubbed the cafe a poppet, P-O-P-P-E-T, an accolade used with assurance only by the greatest connoisseurs of book bindings. Then to the Houghton Library, where I picked him up from Peter Accardo and opened the parcel in the English Department offices at Barker Center with David Weitzel. The Brunei has been rebound. The simple Morocco spine that Brunei commissioned has been replaced by a full crushed Morocco binding of the darkest brown, Marocain Tete de Negre, according to an old clipping mounted on the front flyleaf, by Edouard Pagnant, a late 19th century binder. The spine title is gilt in Gothic letter, in keeping with the letter form used seriatim in the book, and the sides are blind stamped in a panel with a fillet frame, decorated roll, and corner pieces. The book remains uncut, non rogné, on the foredge and bottom edge, so that bold point holes remain on some of the foredges about 6.5 centimeters from the foot. It was described as grand format by the cataloger in Brunet's sale, but it is a bit shorter, 23.1 centimeters, than uncut copies on Van der Leij paper, 23.7, and Velin, 23.6. The collation is standard Pi 2 A to B 8 C 4. I do not know where Bernard bought the book or where it has been since the Brunet sale in 1868. Bernard penciled in the Brunet sale lot number on the front vellum paste down end paper, and there another person wrote RFA 6293. There is a 43 on the free front end paper above a description of this copy, item 22 in a printed catalog from which the tri price has been clipped. The best clue may be on page, 20, uh, page 10, where the number 2565 has been penciled. If I had known that I would speak at Bernard's memorial, I would have brought with me the tribute I wrote for the book collector in a kind of mini festschrift organized by Nicholas Barker. Bernard was touched by the compliments contributed there by Pierre Beres, as they were never close. At my invitation, both attended the dinner party following my presidential address to the Bibliographical Society in 2000. Bernard told me that he owed me a lunch after reading my essay. I concluded, rarely is there such a chord between bookmen as with Bernard Breslauer and the Houghton librarians. Bernard's genius for understanding, choosing, and explaining important things may be his most admirable trait, but after all, many boring people can do that. His endearing traits are his style, his lofty manner, his brutal remarks on everyone in the book world, and his impatience. You will recall, always, in every moment, never satisfied. Bernd Hartmut Breslauer, that is B-E-R-N-D, was born a prince of the antiquariat on the 1st of July, 1918, only son of the witty, urbane, charismatic Martin Breslauer, whose name and memory Bernard cherished and commemorated throughout his life. He would sign himself Martini Filius when he inscribed Jean Furstenberg's collection of his father's occasional verse and essays to Philip Hofer. Martin was supported by his father through extensive Lehrjahren with Prager in Berlin, Menazzi in Rome, Baer in Frankfurt, Dorbon in Paris, Olschke in Florence, and Rosenthal in Munich. For Ludwig R. Rosenthal's Catalog 100, and I can't leave out the fact that item 1871 in that catalog offered leaves 148 and 151 from the 1457 Psalter printed on vellum initials in red and blue 600 marks for the pair the stated rate of exchange was one mark is one franc 25 centime is one shilling for Ludwig Rosenthal's catalog 100 he was assigned the description of item 1148, the Missal Speciale, known subsequently as the Constance Missal, the first copy to be discovered. He headed his description 
vollkommen unbekannter Druck Gutenbergs, I suppose completely unknown Gutenberg uh, printing. But with his fold-out type specimens, he collocated its types with a smaller font of the 1457 Psalter, making no claims for its priority in the chronology of European printing. In 1898, Martin opened a shop in Berlin at Leipziger Strasse 134 with a school friend, Edmund Meyer. Martin dealt old books downstairs, Edmund new ones upstairs. I have seen two catalogs from there five years together, one devoted to Otto von Bismarck und seine Zeit, Ein Bild Deutschlands im 19. Jahrhundert, 1899. He's giving you a whole look at the 19th century Germany through the eyes of Bismarck and books about him. By 1904, Martin had his own shop at Unterden Linden, 16, and his first catalog of rare and precious books was printed elegantly in red and black and illustrated with pictures of the highlights as well as with photographs of his shop and reference room, Bibliographischer Handapparat. The introduction is in English. There followed catalogs of the autographs, documents, and books of the author and bibliophile Eduard Griesebach, about 1908, and the music collection of Karl Bielz, 1910. In 1910, Martin auctioned a Schloss Bibliothek in 2,990 lots, and by 1913, he was, collect he was conducting book auctions from Kurfürstendarm 29. He served in the Great War between 1915 and 1918, and by 1918, he had moved to Franzische Strasse 46, seat of his greatest exploits. He sold the 120,000-volume library of the Fürst zu Stolberg Vernigerode, the 12,500-volume law division of it, to the Harvard Law School, a great treasure in international law. And in the palace of the Archduke Rainer in Vienna, he found the long-lost personal library of the Emperor Napoleon, the Empress Marie Louise, and the King of Rome. Included were Napoleon's battle plans and yards of splendid red Morocco. Lots more auctioned auctions followed, including Griesebach's Schopenhauer Sammlung, with 60 books from Schopenhauer's library, and in collaboration with Otto Haas of Leo Lippmann's the extensive 2,948 lots music library of Dr. Werner Wolfheim. Several of these catalogs have been reprinted as reference works in modern times. Bernard's schoolmates at the Humanistisches Gymnasium scoffed at Hitler's Mein Kampf when it came out, but Bernard would not accept a judgment by people who had not read a book. He got it and read it. Watch out, this is dangerous, he warned him. I did not know how cruel it was to ask a German Jew, why did you stay so long? His response was a reflex. We didn't think it would last. After a brief apprenticeship with Leo Olschke, Bernard joined the firm in 1935, age 17. At a different time or place, Bernard might have entered university and become a real doctor in his 30s instead of an honorary one at 80. It was time to go. Most of Martin's 21,000-volume reference library, bound in brightly colored half-Morocco, was sold to the great Swiss collector Martin Bodmer, and part of the stock and reference library was valued officially for export. The firm closed in October 1936. The family was in England by July 1937, and in October the firm reopened in London at 43 Bedford Court Mansions. Catalogs 52 and 53 were issued there. Bedford Court is three minutes from the British Museum, they advertised, but in the same German rocket raid that hit the British Museum on 16 October 1940, a bomb came down in the courtyard of Bradford Court mansions, blowing the windows in and the books off their shelves. Later in the day, Martin suffered a heart attack and died from the concussion of that blast. Bernard and his mother moved to Shepherd's Bush at 37 Stamford Court, Goldhawk Road, 
His near neighbors to the south on the river, Wilfred Merton and Sidney Cockrell, would later educate his eye for manuscripts and supply stock for his business. Bernd became definitively Bernard in the four years he spent in the Auxiliary Military Pioneer Corps. On leave, he would send out offers of books to collectors. It was tough going for a 22-year-old German-Jewish refugee with a mother to support. He told me, for instance, that he had two customers for book bindings. One paid on delivery if he got a steep discount, a deep discount. The other paid full price, but only months later. Those two would have been Albert Ehrmann and Henry Davis. Thereafter, Bernard's vast learning, high lifestyle, refined collecting, erudite cataloging, and tough business dealing would become a direct repudiation of his native land at the time when it was a rogue state, a pariah among nations, killing its own people and devastating Europe, burning into our vocabulary the noxious words Holocaust and Shoah and into our conscience the idea of genocide. Bernard would abstract this evil into shameful decrees of the then German government, reserving his frequent angry outbursts for the personal behavior of his former friends and acquaintances. You will find a sardonic take on all this in David Aberbach's centennial tribute to Isaiah Berlin in a recent TLS. Among their peers, the Breslauers, both father and son, were bibliographical obsessives, and it behooves me to speak about that trade, as bibliography is the common denominator between book dealers and librarians. Both depend on bibliography to select books as well as to present them to others. You will remember that Martin illustrated his reference library equally with his shop in his first independent catalog in 1904, and he used the expression bibliographischer Handapparat for the former. The German language is a sort of game of magnetic magnetic dominoes. In this case, the Anglo-Saxon cognate Hand has attracted the Latin apparatus. Apparatus suits the reference library, for you have to assemble a complete set of pieces and fit them together into a classification scheme before you can use it. And it is not an automaton. The books are at hand, and you pull them down by hand. As his catalogs attest, Martin was interested in Das Deutsche Lied, Deutsches Leben von Fünfzehnten bis Achtzehnten Jahrhundert and Das Schöne Buch im Wandel der Zeit, the book in the quotidian uh, German song, German life from the 15th, 18th century. But by the 1920s, he would devote whole catalogs to Bücher über Bücher and bibliography. His last catalog, London 1940, was a short list of bibliographical and other works of reference offered at particularly favorable net prices. Bernard would carry this passion to extremes. His first catalog, 1941, was devoted to the gentle science of book collecting, and he would sell his father's private collection of literary forgery. He called it the Tenth Muse. Catalog after catalog was devoted to bibliography, concluding with list 45, Bibliography, Books on Books and Bindings, Catalogs, 1985. The family obsession would engender two grand apotheoses, the BBB of 1986, an unrivaled collection of great bibliographies in great bindings, which I'll leave to future lecturers to explain to you, and 2,000 years of bibliography, milestones in its history and development, the 1981 Grolier Club exhibition. A couple of years after 1977, when Bernard had settled in New York, Immediately in 1978, he celebrated his arrival in the New York sale rooms by purchasing for Bayreuth 
the Wagner manuscripts consigned by the Curtis Institute, and for the Württembergische Landesbibliothek in Stuttgart, the Gutenberg Bible consigned by the General Theological Seminary. He invited me and Robert, that is Bob Nykerk, the eminent Grolier Club librarian in those days, to supper at home. We dined on cold lobster and champagne, and I recall to this day how ravenously Bernard scraped his shells to obtain every morsel. It turned out to be a working supper. Bernard exposed his plan for the greatest bibliography exhibition of all time, start to finish. That is, from the third century BC Pinakes of Callimachus to the National Union Catalog, due for completion in 1981. Bob would schedule it, contribute everything possible from the Grolier Club Library, and mount the show. I would be the Schutzangle, filling in missing pieces from the Harvard University Library. Bernard knew firsthand how difficult it was going to be to locate copies of many of the books. After all, he had dealt in bibliography and collected it all his life. It was a close call to bring everything together in time. After shipping several lots of books from Cambridge, I brought the last ones down on the day of the opening. Among them was Barbier's anonyme, a pseudonym from the medical school, one of the few copies that had not been replaced literally by the revision. Yes, that's the Barbier you heard about in the opuscule mentioned earlier. The absolute sticker was the first bibliography of botanical books, Ovidio Montalbani's Bibliotheca Botanica, Bologna, 1657, a miniature book less than four inches tall. I was sure that Alexander or Louis Agassiz would have pinned that one down for the Museum of Comparative Zoology. Not so. Eventually, Bernard and his co-curator, the bibliographical historian Roland Folter, found a copy at the University of Delaware, Newark. It was a great show, and Bernard and Roland made a great catalog of it. I was repaid by an oblique reference to me by Bernard in his opening address, by acknowledgement along with Bob in the published catalog, and in Roland's inscription in it, to Roger, who bears major responsibility that this project was successfully completed. Even better, though, some days after the opening, I was at E.P. Goldschmidt's at the start of my European book-buying tour. There, on the mantelpiece of the proprietor, Jacques Velicoup, was a copy of the Montalbani. I grabbed it for Harvard. It had been deaccessioned in New York City from the Horticultural Library. Jacques charged $1,850, and we obtained that amount from the friends of the Harvard College Library. We honor Bernard Breslauer as a benefactor of libraries, of the only two libraries where every book and autograph and manuscript he ever owned would fit right in. The British Library is the only national library to build and maintain an international encyclopedic research collection. The Houghton Library is the only private research library to do so with representative collections. I contested with the late Manug Parikian, the husband of Diana, over which of us would obtain an imprint from the first Armenian press, as established by traders in Venice about 1510. I got mine for Harvard after Manug's death, so he could not share my joy. But in the process of collating and identifying a book whose letter forms I could not read, I discovered that the British Museum had formed a whole collection of the press, obtaining every book but mine. So Harvard can represent the first Armenian types to be cut and cast and printed, while the British Museum can show the first library of Armenian books ever to be printed. The librarians in both Cambridge and London must take all books as their province, just as Bernard always did. Witness a representative title from among his catalogs, books, manuscripts, fine bindings, autograph letters from the ninth to the present century. In 1958, he had one that began with the 8th century. 
In future, there could be lectures on Bernard as a collector and Bernard as an expert of bookbindings, the sort of lecture that Bernard used to attend. Some of you may recall how he would sit up front and listen closely. At rare book school lectures, sometimes I would provoke him deliberately by citing the greed of booksellers or some such thing, and he would always pick me up on it with a snicker. I have tried to tell you why I loved Bernard Breslauer, but I have not succeeded. I did not love him as I do my wife or children or my colleagues, those benighted brothers and sisters, the librarians. I loved him for his audacious way with books, for his ceaseless striving, for his natural bravado, and for his brave solitude, citizen of the world, always a German. I cannot bear to think about all the ways in which he was alone. We are all at least a little bit alone. Why not throw your arms around him and give him a big hug? I've never tarried anywhere. I snatched from fortune what I wanted. What did not please me, I let go. And disregarded what eluded me, I've only had desires to fulfill them. Then wished anew, and I've stormed amain my way through life. Once grand and vigorous, my days are spent with prudent caution. I know this mortal sphere sufficiently, and there's no seeing into the beyond. He is a fool who casts a sheep's eye at it, invents himself some peers above the clouds. Let him stand firm and look at what's around him. No good and able man finds this world mute. What need has he to float into eternity? The things he knows are tangible. Let his path be this earth while he exists. If spirits haunt him, let him not break stride, but keeping on, find all life's pains and joys always, in every moment, never satisfied.